And as we do, we will transform our economy and shore up our national security and make the economy grow faster and grow out of the current debt problems. Moreover, it will ensure that creditism survives. It will keep credit from contracting and collapsing into a Great Depression. And the kicker is that it will result in just the most extraordinary technological and medical breakthroughs. I mean, it really is possible that with this level of investment, we could cure all the diseases and expand life expectancy by decades. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Coldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron. All right. Uh, thanks, Niels. And welcome, everyone, to episode number eight of the Ideas Lab series. Um, we're going to try to do three things today. One introduce you to a new way of thinking about how our modern economy grows. Um, some of you aren't going to like it. Uh, you might not agree with it, um, or you might agree with it and still wish it didn't work that way. Um, but that's number one. Number two, we're going to use that as a lens to examine where we are now and what's likely to happen over the next year or so. And then three, we're going to discuss a proposal that our guest has for putting the U.S. on a more stable and sustainable growth path. Um, and the person who's going to lead us through this is Richard Duncan. Richard is the author of a new book called The Money Revolution, How to Finance the Next American Century. Um, he's actually written three other books, including one which was called The Dollar Crisis, which became an international bestseller. Um, he was also the head of investment strategy at ABN AMRO in London, um, head of equity research at James Capel and Solomon Brothers in Bangkok, and has worked for both the World Bank and the IMF. Currently, he publishes a bi-monthly videos newsletter for clients called Macro Watch, which he started in 2013. Um, really, the only <laughs> negative thing that I could dig up about him was that his uh, alma mater, Vanderbilt University, um, consistently has one of the worst American college football teams out there, um, which I can assure our non-U.S. listeners is um, extremely important. Um, but uh, luckily, the 
coach of Vanderbilt moved to my alma mater, Penn State, nine years ago and has since um, turned us into a contender. So, um, Richard, I, I thank you for that, and I welcome you to uh, the Ideas Lab. Kevin, thank you very much for, for having me on, and apologies for Vanderbilt's poor performance on the football field. <laughs> as long as it doesn't affect Penn State, I'm, I'm fine. Um, so let, I wanted to start off um, just with a question about your book. It's called The, the Money Revolution, and I'm curious about the title. Um, from reading the book, it seemed to me that the, the word revolution could be a reference to what's already happened, a revolution that's already happened, basically the decoupling of the dollar from gold um, back in 1971, or it could be a reference to a revolution that's coming. Um, new ways to finance growth. And I was just curious, is it one or both of those or neither? How did you choose the title? Right. So actually, it's a combination of those things. I believe that a, uh, this money revolution was sparked off when the United States stopped backing dollars with gold. Up until 1968, there was a law that required the Fed to maintain gold backing for all of the dollars that it issued. But that year, it didn't have enough gold to continue issuing more dollars. So Congress changed the law, and afterwards, the Fed was no longer required to hold any gold to back the dollars that it issued. And three years later, in 1971, the United States stopped allowing other countries to convert their dollars into gold. And when that happened, the money revolution began, I, I, I argue in the book. And here's why. It fundamentally changed the way our economic system works. So if, if I may, let me elaborate. Please. First of all, of course, it meant that afterwards, the Fed was free to create, create as many dollars as it dared. The only real constraint it had to worry about was if it created so many dollars that it led to high rates of inflation. Now, a second thing changed. Once the U.S. was no longer backing dollars with gold, Trade between nations no longer had to balance. When the U.S. was on a gold-backed monetary system, uh, the Bretton Woods system, or before that, the gold standard, trade between nations had to balance. And here's why. For example, in the 19th century, if England had a very big trade deficit with France, then England's gold would literally have been put on a ship and sent over to France. And since gold was money, England's money supply would have contracted, and they would have had a very severe recession, unemployment would have gone up, and they would have had deflation. And the opposite would have happened in France. France would have had more gold, more money, credit would have expanded, the economy would have boomed, they would have had inflation, and pretty soon the rich French, well, so England would have simply run out of money, so they wouldn't have been able to continue having a trade deficit trade would have come back into balance. And all the more so because France would have been, it would have had more money. So it would have started buying more cheap English goods. And the English with less money would have stopped buying so many expensive French goods and trade would have come back into balance again. There was an automatic adjustment mechanism under the gold standard that ensured that trade between nations had to balance. And that's the way global trade worked up until the Bret Wood system broke down in 1971. Afterwards, though, things changed radically. It took the U.S. a little while to discover this, but starting in the early 1980s, 
it started running very large trade deficits with the rest of the world, uh, with Japan and Germany in particular. And by the middle of the 1980s, the U.S. trade deficit as a percentage of GDP had gone from zero, effectively, to three and a half percent of GDP by the mid-80s. And this was totally unprecedented. Nothing like this had ever occurred before. And it was so alarming that the global policymakers met at the Plaza Hotel in New York and reached the Plaza Accord and devalued the dollar by 50% against the yen and the mark. And that was enough to bring trade back into balance for a few years around 1990. But then China entered the global economy and other very low-wage countries. And the United States started running even bigger trade deficits with these new trading partners. And by 2006, the U.S. trade deficit had blown out to $800 billion that year. That was 6% of U.S. GDP. Now, why this is significant is as follows. Uh, when, when trade had to balance, that meant if the U.S. government had very large budget deficits and overstimulated the U.S. economy, and if the Fed created too much money and overstimulated the U.S. economy, then very quickly, the U.S. economy would run up against domestic bottlenecks. There would be full employment and full industrial capacity utilization. All the car factories would be working as flat out. Steel factories would be producing as much steel as they could. And so we would see wages rise and the cost of manufactured goods rise. And this would lead to a wage push inflation spiral like we saw in the uh, beginning in the late 60s, but mostly in the 1970s. Well, once trade stopped balancing, however, this allowed the United States to circumvent all the domestic bottlenecks. Suddenly, we were no longer dealing with an economy with, let's say, 100 million people in the workforce. We had a global economy with billions of people in the workforce, most of whom were earning far, far less than the Americans were. In 1990, the Chinese were probably earning 5% as much as the average American. So suddenly, there were no longer domestic bottlenecks, supply chain bottlenecks. And globalization, it was the age of globalization, occurred. And this was extremely deflationary because as the United States started buying more and more goods from countries with ultra-low wages, that pushed down the price of manufactured goods. And it also pushed down wages in the U.S., and so this, we, as a result of this, we saw inflation fall from the mid-double digit, uh, 15% or even more in the, in the early 1980s. It fell and it fell and it fell and it fell and frequently turned negative uh, leading up in the years leading up to the COVID pandemic. So this changed everything. What it meant was that the U.S. government was suddenly able to run much larger budget deficits than it had ever done before and finance them at a very low interest rates because the low inflation meant that the interest rates came down to extremely low levels. And in 2008, in that crisis, the Fed, the, the government was able to respond with trillion-dollar budget deficits for four years in a row, much higher than ever before. And the Fed financed much of that with new paper money creation through three rounds of quantitative easing. And we still didn't have high rates of inflation. So that's, that's the second thing that changed. Globalization uh, was extremely disinflationary. 
So the third thing that I've already touched on a bit was that with globalization and extremely low inflation, the U.S. government was able to borrow more than it had done in the past without pushing up interest rates. When gold was backed by money and the Fed couldn't create as much of it as it wanted, if the government borrowed a lot of money, it would, given that there was a fixed amount of money, that would push up interest rates. It would crowd out the private sector. There was only a certain amount of money, so if the government borrowed a lot of it, that would push up the price of borrowing money, and that would crowd out the private sector. But again, once the Fed was free to create as much money as it pleased and buy a lot of government bonds, then this enabled the U.S. government to borrow much more and spend much more, for instance, stimulating the economy after the crisis of 2008 without leading to higher interest rates because the Fed was financing the government borrowing. And then one final point that's also very important. At the same time, after dollars ceased to be backed by gold, credit exploded in the United States. Now, it wasn't just the end of gold backing for the dollar. There were also regulatory changes, but credit growth really exploded, especially after the 1970s. But for, in for instance, total debt and total credit are two sides of the same coin. One person's debt is another person's asset, right? So what I'm talking about here is the total debt of the country, not just the government debt, but household sector debt, corporate debt, financial sector debt, uh, non-corporate business debt, all the debt in the country. That first went through $1 trillion in 1964, when I was three years old. By 2008, it had expanded 53 times to $53 trillion. And now it's $91 trillion. Credit growth as a percentage of GDP, total credit to GDP went from something like 130% in 1950 to 180% in 1980. And then when these changes kicked in that I just described, it went from 180% in 1980 to 380% now. So credit exploded and it became the main driver of economic growth. Credit growth was driving faster, growing faster than the economy. And this, of course, as more people borrowed money, they could consume more and businesses could invest more. And this also drove up asset prices and created a wealth effect. And it was all very positive as long as credit growth kept growing more rapidly uh, or it continued to grow very rapidly. The problem is, is in 2008, then, the private sector couldn't repay all of the debt that it had taken on in the housing boom years, and they started defaulting on the debt. And at that point, credit started to contract, and the U.S. started to go into a Great Depression, and the government had to intervene with, with multi-trillion dollar budget deficits. And that reflated the economy. So there's... Basically, what what you're what you're describing is a transition from the kind of old world, almost the textbook world, where growth was driven by savings and investment. Right, people would save, invest, they would make a profit. That profit would accumulate as capital, get reinvested, 
And I think in the book, you actually show, you have this nice graph where you show that credit growth tracked savings uh, growth pretty pretty closely up until 1971. And then gradually they start to um, go their own separate ways, credit growing much faster than savings, and then really accelerating in 1980, uh, in the 1980s and since. And you call the, 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 so that the new system, creditism, um, and you say it's a system that, where credit creation and consumption have replaced savings and investments as the dynamic that makes the economy grow. So, and I know you've kind of, you've sort of touched on this, but could you kind of step back and explain exactly what you mean by creditism and um, maybe just kind of walk us through an example or two of, of how, you know, how credit creation and consumption generate economic growth? Because I think for a lot of people, that's kind of counterintuitive because we think of as you said, credit creation is borrowing and consumption is spending. So borrowing and spending, um, although that, that's probably been the Re- Republican Party's platform for the last 30 or 40 years, um, that's not something that would, one would automatically think of as being a great long-term economic growth strategy. Right. So what you said is exactly right. Capitalism was an economic system that was driven by investment and savings. Businessmen would invest, some of them would make a profit, they would save that profit, or in other words, accumulate capital, hence capitalism, and repeat. It was kind of slow and difficult. That's not the way our economic system works anymore. Today, our economic system is driven by credit creation and consumption, and more credit creation and more consumption. And that has been a lot easier, actually, up until the credit couldn't be repaid in 2008. So the way this works is as long as credit is expanding rapidly, it's very easy to make the economy grow. Consumers can borrow more on their credit cards or extract equity from their homes, and they can go out and spend it. And of course, consumption makes up 70% of US GDP. And similarly, businesses, as long as they have access to more and more credit, they can invest more. And the more they invest, it creates more jobs, they buy more raw materials, and that makes the economy grow. The key is this, and no one, this wasn't some sort of evil scheme that someone (laughs) planned. This is just the way things evolved. This is the way our economic system evolved once it was no longer constrained by the requirement for money to be backed by gold, as it always had been up until then. So all of classical economic theory was built around premise number one, gold is money, and everything else followed from that. When gold ceased to be money, this created a whole new set of circumstances that I described earlier that allowed the economy to evolve in a completely new way. And the way it evolved resulted in unprecedented global prosperity. It pulled hundreds of millions of people around the world out of poverty. Look at China. This is the thing that transformed China. I first saw China in 1986, and it was a very poor developing country. 
go there now and it has things have changed entirely. It has far better infrastructure than the United States does. Uh, Shanghai looks like the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz, and they're about to t overtake us economically, technologically, and militarily. Uh, and this has resulted from them having an extraordinarily large trade surplus year after year, decade after decade with the United States that's transformed their country. So that explanation makes sense. I, I'm just curious. I, I want to kind of circle back because you're not saying that in the creditism world there's no investment. Because when, when, I, when I read that credit creation and consumption of replaced savings and investment, I'm thinking, well, how does the productive asset base of you know, the capital of economy grow in that world? I just want to make sure I understand that. Right. Well, so when credit expands, it creates savings and the savings can be invested. Think about many people are, are familiar with the idea of money creation through fractional reserve banking, right? So the, the way that works is if the required reserve ratio for the banking sector is 10% and that banking sector receives a deposit of $100. The bank that receives that deposit has to set aside 10% as bank reserves and it lends out the other 90%. That goes into whoever receives that money deposits that into their bank account and it becomes their savings. That bank, let's call it bank B, it sets aside 10% and it lends out the remaining, the next 90%, uh, 80, 80, let's call it $80. And this process repeats itself again and again until at the end of the process, there is 10 times as much uh, credit as, as there was to begin with. Banks create money by extending credit. People typically think that banks only lend the money that they have as deposits. They must have deposits first that they can lend. But that's, that's the common sense way of thinking about it, of course, but that's actually not true. It's the opposite. That banks they, create they, banks deposits. Banks create deposits with their loans. By extending credit. Banks yeah. create credit, that creates the savings, and the savings provides the funding that allows the economy to grow. Yeah, and you you do a good job in the book of of saying that you know, it, it, you know, explaining that, which I think most people are familiar with, but then also saying, hey, actually, it's not just banks, and in fact, banks are are far less important in the credit creation process now than they than they used to be. It's really, um, you know, the non-bank financial sector, as well as um, foreign central banks that are creating a lot of the credit. And I, if we could, um, because you, you have a fascinating section in the book about how foreign central banks have created uh, credit, and you say that's probably the greatest failing of, of, of modern economics is the failure to understand that. So you know, explain that. Explain how foreign central banks actually create credit, say, in, in the U.S. Right. Okay. So just one more follow-up on, on the way that commercial banks create credit. 
what I described was the money multiplier. That's if the if the required reserve ratio is 10%, then the money multiplier is 1 divided by 10%, or 10 times. Well, what we've seen in recent decades is that the required reserve ratio has been steadily lowered and lowered and lowered, which means that the money multiplier has become higher and higher and higher. And now, the required reserve ratio in the United States has been reduced to 0% which means that the money multiplier is infinity. There are no constraints on how much credit that U.S. commercial banks can create. The only constraint is the ability of the people they lend to to pay interest on the money they have borrowed. And so that's why bank credit has exploded. Now, moving on to your question of how foreign central banks have created money and lent it into the United States. This has been a very important factor that has resulted in the, in, in the United States being blown into an economic bubble. So total foreign exchange reserves are foreign currency held by central banks. Total foreign exchange reserves in the year 2000, in total, there were $2 trillion of foreign exchange reserves. By 2014, there were $12 trillion of foreign exchange reserves. So an additional $10 trillion of foreign exchange reserves in 12 years. So let's go through how this works. Let's use China as an example. China's trade surplus with the United States is about, it's, it's been more than a billion dollars a day for years. Let's call it $400 billion a year right now. So Chinese companies sell their products in the United States. They get paid in dollars. They take that $400 billion back to China every year, and they want to convert it into the local currency, the Chinese yuan. But if they converted $400 billion into yuan in a free market, of course, that would drive up the price of the yuan to a very high level and the expensive yuan would make Chinese exports uncompetitive. So to prevent that from happening, the Chinese central bank buys all of the dollars coming into China at a fixed exchange rate so that the currency doesn't appreciate. So the Chinese manufacturers get to convert their dollars into yuan and they can do anything they want with them after that, but they all end up in the Chinese banking system as deposits. But the point here is where did the central bank of China get $400 billion worth of yuan last year that it used to buy $400 billion? And the answer is, they're a central bank. They just created this money from thin air. And so it's money creation by foreign central banks that results in this buildup in foreign exchange reserves. So it's much like everyone's now familiar with quantitative easing, where the Fed creates dollars and buys government bonds, pushes up the price of government bonds in the US and pushes down their yield. What I'm describing is exactly the same thing with one extra step. The People's Bank of China first creates its own currency. That's step one. It then uses that currency to buy US dollars. Step two, it then uses those dollars to buy US government bonds. Step three, because it has to put the dollars that it accumulates somewhere. 
it, if it's accumulating all these dollars, it's not just going to bury them under the Great Wall somewhere. They're going to invest them in U.S. dollar-denominated assets, like treasury bonds, or bonds issued by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, or corporate bonds, or even stocks. So what we've experienced is this $10 trillion or $12 trillion, $10 trillion increase in foreign exchange reserves, that has far exceeded the amount of the first three rounds of quantitative easing. The Fed created $3.5 trillion between 2008 and 2014 through the first three rounds of quantitative easing. And they used that money to buy government, U.S. government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. That pushed up the price of those bonds, and it pushed down their yields, keeping interest rates low in the U.S. The $10 trillion that have been created by foreign central banks, that's three times as much as the first three rounds of quantitative easing. So by 2007, if I remember correctly, the amount of investment by foreign central banks in the United States, it had financed 15% of all the debt in the United States, up from zero just a short while, 15 years earlier. So by pumping, by financing 15% of all of the credit, and the, by financing 15% of the $50 trillion of debt in the United States, it pushed up the price of treasury bonds. Now, this had a very big influence on creating the property bubble in the years 2004, 5, and 6, and 7. At that time, the Fed started hiking the federal funds rate. It started between the middle of, because it was worried about property prices running out of control. So starting with Alan Greenspan and continuing on under Ben Bernanke from mid-2004 to mid-2000. Six, over a 24-month period, the Fed increased the federal funds rate by 425 basis points, 17 interest rate hikes, of, I think, of 25 basis points each. So just uh, pushing it up, I think, to five and a quarter, five and a quarter percent the federal funds rate. The federal funds rate now is 3.1 percent. So this was, you know, very significant monetary policy tightening. But... During that time, despite this 425 basis point increase in the federal funds rate, the 10-year bond yield didn't go up. Why didn't the 10-year bond yield go up? Normally, when the federal funds rate goes up, the 10-year bond yield goes up in line with it or more. Not this time. During that 24-month period, the 10-year bond yield rose only about 38 basis points. So what was going on? Well, what was going on was the People's Bank of China and other central banks around the world with trade surpluses with the U.S. were creating their own money, buying trillions of dollars, literally, and then investing those trillions of dollars that they accumulated into U.S. dollar-denominated assets, primarily treasury bonds, pushing up their price and holding down their yield. And so the Fed was unable to make the 10-year bond yields go up or the mortgage rates go up for this reason. In other words, it lost control over interest rates and was unable to prevent the property bubble from developing during those years because the foreign central banks were creating so much fiat money of their own and pumping it into the U.S. economy. Yeah, that's a, that's a, a fascinating 
Oh, fascinating story. And we actually talk about that in, in our book, The Rise of Carry. We call it the circular, global circular flow of dollars, you know, where dollars leave the U.S., go to China, find their way to the Chinese central bank, and then come back to finance the U.S. deficit. Um, you, you've got a great, just a kind of almost shocking, really, um, section in your book where you subsequently ask Alan Greenspan about that. You say, hey, you know, you, you called her the conundrum back in 2006 when, you know, you couldn't, you, you weren't sure why long interest rates were going up. And then I think, I don't know if I think it was 2017 when you met with Greenspan and asked him, you know, was it foreign central banks? Do you recognize their impact? And his answer was, was indecipherable, was just rambling. And the, my question to you is, do you think he was purposely, you know, being, I don't know, purposely being difficult to understand or was it, did he really not, hadn't thought about it? I, I, I just don't, I couldn't believe that transcript. Greenspan once famously said, if you think you understood what I just said, you probably misunderstood me. <laughs> <laughs> right. I remember that's the back, you know, the maestro days, right? Where we were so all supposed to famous, guess what he... Famous for not speaking clearly or in a way that can be understood on purpose. And so I, I have to believe that that was the case here. Because if he didn't understand that his counterparts in other central banks were creating the equivalent of trillions of dollars, which they used to buy trillions of dollars, which they then used to buy trillions of dollars of treasury bonds, then it's just inconceivable that he didn't know that. Yeah. Because these central bankers talk to each other on a daily basis. And um, you can't ignore trillions of dollars of fiat money creation moving from one central bank into another economy and blowing it into a bubble. I want to try to take us back to this notion of creditism um, and and in doing so kind of figure out where we currently are in the cycle. But before I do that, um, you know, the the way you just described it, one would, you know, you you talked about blowing the U.S. into a bubble and the U.S. is losing control of its monetary policy. But you do say in the book um, that ultimately that this process was a good thing, that the world economy is much bigger than it would have been without it. Hundreds of millions of people in Asia in particular have been pulled out of poverty. So you're, you know, when you talk through the narrative, one gets the sense that, you know, you're describing a process that seems, um, you know, that, that you seem worried about. But on the other hand, you, you say in the book that the end result of this process has been a good thing. Well, that is the good side of it. The bad side of it is that it's blown the global economy into a big economic bubble. And if credit contracts, it could spiral into a new Great Depression. If credit doesn't grow, then the economy will collapse. So if you look just at the US, going back to 1950, every time between 1950 and 2009, if total credit in the US grew by less than 2%, and this is adjusted for inflation to compare apples with apples, if total credit grew by less than 2%, the US went into recession. And the recession didn't end until there was another big surge of credit expansion. So that happened nine times between 1950 and 2009. 
So what that's telling us is our economy has grown addicted to credit growth. And if we don't have credit growth, if credit grows by less than 2% adjusted for inflation, we have a recession. And by the way, that's where we are at the moment. And if credit actually contracts significantly, we go into a, a depression. And that's what almost happened in 2008. And that's what almost happened again in 2020. But because of government intervention with trillions of dollars of budget deficits financed with trillions of dollars of paper money creation by the Fed, that caused credit to expand and that kept the bubble inflated and growing. Yeah, so um, that's that. That's kind of exactly where I wanted to take us. And I, um, you know, I I saw that indicator that you had put together, basically real credit growth of less than 2% equals recession. And I confirmed that's, that's right. I, I actually, uh, one of the dangers of your book, by the way, is, um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to recreate all the graphs myself. And I think there's, there's a lot of them. So I, I kind of went down multiple rabbit holes trying to double check everything. Um, but 250 it, charts and tables. 200, right. Um, but so if we look at where we are now, um, credit growth has fell below that 2% threshold last year, and it's actually been negative the last couple quarters. So I had two questions for you. Um, one is, should we be averaging that, you know, to take account of the fact that, well, credit growth was exceptionally high during 2020, so if it's low in 2021, really average across the two, uh, number one. And number two, given that credit growth is now negative, at least it was through the, uh, through the second quarter, again, negative adjusting for inflation, what's your, you know, what's your outlook for you know, the, the next kind of six to 12 months? I can't imagine it's very good. Well, right. So, yes, like, Economic models, like I've just laid out with credit growth of 2% adjusted for inflation required to prevent a recession, they are just models. You can't, you can't bet your life on them because the world is a kaleidoscope of moving parts. Everything keeps changing. But as models, they, they help you. They create a framework that if this is the way it was in the past, this is probably going to be the way it is in the future. But of course, for instance, you could get a very big spike in credit growth in the last two weeks of December of one year. And that would have no impact on GDP growth that year. It would impact the GDP growth the following year. So you have to take all of this with a grain of salt. But so, so you ask whether we should average them. I would just say keep an eye on them. Because what we've seen now is credit has adjusted for inflation, has been below the 2% recession threshold now for five quarters. And credit has actually been contracting now for three quarters. In the most recent quarter, total credit contracted by 1.7% relative to one year before. This is adjusted for inflation. And GDP has been negative now for two quarters in a row already. And it looks like it's going to become worse next year. That's the consensus, and I think that's, that's true. And worse still, or making matters worse still, is credit growth has really been relatively quite weak since the crisis of 2008. 
and GDP growth has been stronger than would have been expected, given how weak the credit growth has been. And I, I believe that the reason the GDP growth has been as strong as it has been is because the Fed has been very worried about the weak credit growth and the weak economic growth. And after 2008, the Fed used extremely low interest rates and round after round of quantitative easing to push up asset prices and create a wealth effect. And that wealth effect fueled consumption and that fueled economic growth. And so when credit growth has been two weeks since 2008, the Fed used asset price inflation to supplement that credit growth to ensure that the, the, that the economy continued to grow. Now, however, we're in a situation where, because the inflation rate has spiked up to above 8%, uh, the Fed um, is having to increase interest rates rapidly, and they're now destroying $95 billion a month through quantitative easing, which is adding up. Quantitative and, tightening. So, sorry, yes, excuse me, quantitative tightening. So not only is credit now contracting on a year-on-year basis, but asset prices are, are dropping very sharply. In the second quarter, net household sector net worth declined by $6 trillion. That was, uh, so you've got a combination of a negative wealth effect and credit contraction now, creating a very, uh, very, very challenging environment for creditism with the outlook for asset prices and the outlook for the economy. Very, very worrying. Yeah, I, I noticed uh, you were kind enough to share um, a couple of your recent, you know, client presentations. And on one of them, you talk about the ratio of um, household wealth to income. Um, and you were saying that, um, you know, to get back to kind of like an average level would require a further fall from where we are now of roughly $35 trillion. And to put that in the context wealth has fallen this year by about 15 trillion so you're talking something on the order of more than double what we've seen this year already um how would you expect that to manifest i I think my guess is that you would expect real estate prices to to account for a fair portion of that yes that's right I, i think real estate prices are probably going to begin dropping at a double digit rate before Um, the middle of next year, or at least sometime next year. And that real estate represents the largest portion of household sector wealth. So it's likely to, the wealth is likely to be destroyed there. Now the the Fed has recently, just in September, at their September FOMC meeting, they came out with their projections for the federal funds rate. And they were... They're now projecting at the September meeting much more aggressive increases in the federal funds rate than they were at the June meeting. In the June meeting, they expected the federal funds rate to be uh, 3.4% at the end of this year. Now they expect it to be 4.4%. So it looks like the Fed is going to keep hiking until something breaks. And that's likely to mean another big leg down in the stock market and other risky asset classes, and also uh, falling property prices. I think property prices fell month on month for the first time last in July, but the drops are likely to become much more. And I think that 
The Fed is projecting, I think, that the federal funds rate will be 4.6% at the end of next year, 2023. But I would expect that the federal funds rate is going to have to go significantly above that sometime in the middle of 2023. The federal funds rate right now is about 3.1%. That's the effective federal funds rate. If they hike by 75 basis points again in November and 50 basis points in December, there are only two meetings this year, that will take the federal funds rate up to about 4.3% by the end of the year. The Fed has said that it will be 4.4% at the end of the year. So that's more or less in line. But from there, to get to 4.6% at the end of next year, that suggests only one more rate hike of around 30 basis points. That's unrealistic. It's more likely the Fed's going to increase by 25 basis points at each of its meetings in the first half of next year. And it has four meetings in the first half of next year. So that will take the federal funds rate up to 5.3% by the middle of the year. And if that is the case, then that will be enough to throw millions of Americans out of work, destroy consumption, and destroy demand. The Fed has to destroy demand to get inflation down. It can't do anything on the su supply side. So it's going to have to throw a lot of Americans out of work. And it's probably going to take interest rates of something like the federal funds rate at 5.5. And that would make mortgage rates significantly above that. Mortgage rates are now already six and a quarter. And as mortgage rates go up, home prices are going to start falling. And of course, the economy is going to go into quite a bad re recession. And the unemployment rate, which is now 3.7%, is very likely to move very much higher. It does, it does seem like the ghost of uh, Paul Volcker is stalking the, the Fed, and they don't, they don't want to be in a situation, I think, like he was, where he initially tightened, then eased, and then had to really tighten again. Um, I, do, I do wonder, I mean, I don't have the economic expertise that you do, but I, I wonder if they'd be able to sustain um, continued tightening in the face of very sharp falls in, in asset prices. Um, it'll be interesting. It, would, it certainly won't be, won't be easy for them. Let's, um, if we can maybe move away from all the doom and gloom and talk about one of the bright spots that's happened recently, uh, which I know you've also written about, which I think is a nice segue into the last section I want to talk about, which is your recommendations going forward. Um, and the bright spot is the uh, Chips and Science Act passage. Now, um, this was one of my classes at Berkeley. I'd probably call on someone in the audience to tell us what it is uh, because we should all know. But uh, just in case any of our listeners don't know what it is, can you, can you explain what the Chips and Science Act is and why you think it's so important? Okay, well, just within the last uh, two months, the House and the Senate passed the Chips and Science Act and it was signed into law by the president. And what it is, it is... Um, a law that will have the U.S. government invest $280 billion in new industries and technologies over the next five years, with $52 billion of that going specifically for the development of semiconductor manufacturing facilities in the United States, and the rest being spread out among other cutting-edge 21st century industries and technologies like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, biotech, genetic engineering, robotics, clean energy, etc. So this is extremely important for our country. 
because the U.S. has been investing, the U.S. government at the federal level has been investing less and less decade after decade since the 1960s. And at the same time, China has been investing more and more. And in the year 2000, the United States government invested eight times as, the, well, the U.S. as a whole invested eight times as much in research and development as China did. By last, by 2019, it only invested 20% more. And last year, China has invested more than the United States does in R&D. And if the current growth rates continue, then by the end of this decade, by 2030, China will invest 40% more that year in R&D than the United States does. And if that happens, China will be the undisputed sole global superpower. And the United States will be a vulnerable, has-been power at China's mercy, along with the rest of the world. Now, my book, The, the Money Revolution, How to Finance the Next American Century, has three parts. It spans 120 years, 120, 110 years of history and 10 years looking into the future. Part one is a history of the Fed and describing how the Fed has evolved since it was created in 1913 up to the present by analyzing changes in the Fed's balance sheets uh, over consecutive periods between the beginning and now. And the start of the money revolution when the Fed stopped backing dollars with gold. The second part is also history. It's the history of creditism, how credit growth became the dominant driver of economic growth in the United States and how that occurred. The third part draws on the lessons that can be derived from the history of money and credit explained in the first two parts to make recommendations about how we can make the, the future a better place. And how we can make the future a better place is for the U.S. government to invest in new industries and new technologies on a multi-trillion dollar scale over the next decade. By, and by doing that, they will induce a technological revolution that would turbocharge U.S. productivity and economic growth. It would radically enhance human well-being by uh, numerous ways including extending life expectancy and probably curing all the diseases. And at the same time, it would shore up U.S. national security and guarantee U.S. national security for generations to come. This would, and the final part of the book shows how easy it would be for the United States government to finance an investment of this scale, given the new economic environment we're living in now that dollars are no longer backed by gold. And that's really, I think, the the flip side. So you've described creditism as a, you know, basically the the, I don't know, an evolutionary stage of the of the economy, and it has some scary aspects. Um, it, it feels, if not like a Ponzi scheme, it certainly requires continual forward motion. Um, at the same time, I think what you're saying is okay. Um, it's allowed us the it, it's freed us from the shackles uh, to some extent and allowed us to potentially finance um, productive investment. So 
explain just in detail now or or clarify, I suppose, how exactly you imagine this happening. So you're talking about a 10-year, $10 trillion investment in industries of the future. And if I'm right, you're suggesting that the government um, do this through partnerships with private industries. So the government holds some equity stake or licensing, fee, licensing fees. And you're suggesting that it be financed by issuing debt that's purchased by the Federal Reserve. Is that right? That's right. So what I propose in, in part three of the book is a, a multi-trillion dollar investment program. I, I propose that the government invest as much as possible, as fast as possible. And if that starts to lead to overheating the economy and higher rates of inflation, then they can back off for a while until the, whatever the bottlenecks are that are causing the inflation are overcome. And so I use an example in one of the chapters of the book of a $10 trillion investment program over a 10-year period. Uh, just to illustrate some numbers behind this. Why 10 trillion? Well, it's just a big round number. It's a kind of a shockingly large number. So uh, we wouldn't start off with a trillion dollar investment in year number one. We would have to build up gradually. I think I suggest something like $70 billion in the first year, $250 billion in the second year, and building up after that until it reaches uh, the final year would be $1.6 trillion investment in 2031. And so that's, that's the idea. Now, if we, under this scenario, and here I assume, the, how, how high would U.S. government debt be if we did that? Government debt to GDP. What would the government debt to GDP ratio be if we invested an extra $10 trillion over the next 10 years? Well, in a worst case scenario, where every last cent of that new investment, all $10 trillion is invested, all that, all that money that is invested is entirely wasted. It produces no economic growth, no technological breakthroughs, nothing whatsoever that is good. It just adds $10 trillion to the debt. In that scenario, in 10 years from now, the US government debt would be 151% of GDP, 151%. That's considerably higher than the Congressional Budget Office projects that it will be 10 years from now. Their projection is 121% government debt to GDP 10 years from now. So in this worst case scenario, it would be 150%, 151% of GDP. Well, that's 10 years from now in a case where all of this investment is wasted, which is totally absurd. Today, Japan's government debt is 260% of GDP, almost twice as high as US government debt would be 10 years from now. Japanese government debt hit 151% of GDP 20 years ago in, 200, in 2002. So this, and is Japan in crisis, are they experiencing hyperinflation? No, they flirt with deflation most of the time. Are they having trouble selling their government bonds? No, their government bond yield is 25 basis points. So this just is one example of how easy it would be for the government to finance this debt. 
And of course, if the government invested $10 trillion in new industries and technologies over a 10-year period, the, U the U.S. economy would grow somewhere between 5 and 10% a year, especially in the second five-year period. It would turbocharge U.S. economic growth. The GDP would be so much larger 10 years from now than it's currently expected to be. I believe the ratio of government debt to GDP 10 years from now would be lower than it's projected to be at the moment because of the, the, the limitless, the, the unending benefits that would result from such a large-scale investment program. I, uh, I mean, this sounds a lot like modern monetary theory, um, which it, it, you may or may not agree with. Um, I, I, I remember talking to a friend about this idea like a decade ago where I, I kind of described it as we should call the bond markets bluff. You know, if the bond market's going to allow the U.S. to finance, you know, to, to pay whatever, 2.5% on a 30-year bond, we should just sell a bunch of bonds and invest because surely we can find projects that earned higher than two and a half percent. Um, you're saying, I, if I get this right, that with the Fed buying the, uh, the debt, that there's, um, that there's three, three risks, inflation, um, asset price inflation, creating more inequality, and then a threat to the dollar. Um, you also talk about in the, in the book that, to make the cost of this more reasonable, the Fed should stop paying interest on reserves because right now, if it bought the $10 trillion, that would create $10 trillion of bank reserves that the Fed would have to pay interest on at a, at a, you know, a meaningful rate now. Um, so does the logic of your investment idea still hold up with the Fed paying interest on reserves? So, right, starting in 2008, Congress changed the law to allow the Fed to pay interest on bank reserves. Before that, the, the, the Fed didn't pay interest on bank reserves. And now the Fed has to pay interest on bank reserves in order to make the federal funds rate go up. It's currently paying about 3.1% on all the bank reserves. Mm -hmm. And that's why the federal funds rate is 3.1%. The banks won't lend money at less than 3.1% because the Fed will pay them 3.1% just by parking their money at the Fed. So the Fed now controls the federal funds rate in a very different way than it did in the past. Now it controls it by pushing up the federal funds rate by paying a higher interest rate on bank reserves. But in the past, the Fed was before, before 2008, before quantitative easing flooded the world with bank reserves, the Fed was able to just make very small changes in the amount of reserves that were available through small open market operations, either buying some government bonds or selling some government bonds and that kept the amount of reserves very tight. Banks used to be required to have a level of required reserve, a required reserve ratio. At one time, it was as high as 14%. And they had to keep that amount of reserves at the bank because that was the law. And if the Fed wanted to stimulate the economy, they could lower the level of bank reserves. And if they wanted to slow the economy down, they could increase the level of bank reserves that were the required reserve ratio. So in the book, I propose that rather than paying interest on reserves to control the federal funds rate, the Fed should simply just, again, reimpose a required reserve ratio 
as high as necessary to absorb all the excess reserves that have been created by money creation by the Fed. Now, your question is, what if that doesn't happen? Uh, is, the, is the whole plan unviable? Well, in that case, what that would mean effectively is that the government would have to finance everything itself rather than, as I proposed, if the Fed finances this $10 trillion investment program by creating money and buying government bonds, then that would mean the entire investment program would be cost-free to the American public, as long as the Fed is not paying any interest on bank reserves. But if, if that component is taken out of the plan, then the government would have to finance this $10 trillion of additional government debt. Uh, and I don't see that as too problematic, because as I said, in a worst case scenario, where this $10 trillion investment creates no growth or breakthroughs whatsoever, the, the government debt to GDP would be 151%, whereas Japan's government debt has been at that level or more for the last 20 years. So it could still go ahead. And so that the, the, the Chips and Science Act, bringing this back around to that, this is so great because I've been talking about these ideas for the government to invest on a very aggressive scale in new industries and technologies for quite a long time. And in the past, people would say, well, that's a very interesting idea, but you know the government's never going to do that. Well, hey, the government just did that. $280 billion is not multi-trillion, but it's a good first step in the right direction. And we need to do more of that. And as we do, we will transform our economy and shore up our national security and make the economy grow faster and grow out of the current debt problems. Moreover, it will ensure that creditism survives. It will keep credit from contracting and collapsing into a Great Depression. And the kicker is that it will result in just the most extraordinary technological and medical breakthroughs. I mean, it really is possible that with this level of investment, we could cure all the diseases and expand life expectancy by decades. Yeah. Currently, the, the National Cancer Institute, its annual budget is $6 billion a year. Cancer kills 600,000 Americans every year. Well, $6 billion a year is not curing cancer. $6 billion until just six months ago, nine months ago, all of last year, the Fed was creating $120 billion every month. $6 billion is 5% of one month of quantitative easing. It's not enough. Let's, you know, let's, let's expand that by a factor of 10 or 20, and let's cure cancer. This is the, these are the opportunities that now lie in front of us as a result of the money revolution that has occurred over the last five decades. We just have to recognize them and grasp them. And if we don't, we're going to be overtaken by China and uh, it's going to be game over. If they develop artificial intelligence before the United States does, it will be the 21st century equivalent of China having, nu having a nuclear weapons monopoly. They will control the world and we will never catch up with them. Well, that puts it in that puts it in quite stark terms. Um, I, I let I want to wrap up at um, a final question. To what extent? I mean, you've you've I know you were a consultant with the IMF and you worked for the World Bank for a while, so you have 
um, you know, um, I assume a kind of a contact network within um, the policymaking world. Do you, what extent do you believe your your uh, mental model of the economy as creditism is accepted, um, acknowledged, or to what extent is it still seen as kind of, um, I don't know, a um, kind of a new idea or an unusual idea? So it is a new idea, and uh, but it's one that I've been discussing for more than a decade now, I suppose. And I believe as more and more people hear it, and as year after year it continues to be quite valid, that the idea is catching on. And in terms of this uh, Chips and Science Act, I view that as very encouraging. I, I would not say that has anything to do with what I have written or what I have talked about, but it does show that the ideas that I have written about in the book are spreading through society. It was three or not quite four years ago that Charles Schumer, the, who was then Senate Minority Leader, made a speech in Washington before the defense establishment in which he said that if he became, uh, that he was going to propose uh, an act to invest, I think he said $100 billion over five years in new industries and technologies because China was uh, on the verge of overtaking us and challenging our, threatening our national security. I was delighted to hear that. Uh, so that was some time ago, and that, is, but I, but that's clearly not enough. One hundred billion over five years uh, is not going to do the trick. I, I tweeted Senator Schumer, "I'll see your one hundred billion and raise your nine point <laughs> nine trillion," because that's the sort of investment that is possible. Okay, so you know, ten trillion. Like I said, I'm proposing investing as much as possible as quickly as possible. Does it have to be ten trillion dollars? No. Multi-trillion we can afford. In the second quarter of 2020, the U.S. government borrowed $2.8 trillion in the second quarter of 2020. That was equivalent to 13% of 2020 GDP for the whole year. So if we can, that was a multi-trillion dollar borrowing plan in three months. If we can do that in three months, then we can certainly do that over 10 years. Yeah, it really does. It's funny, the um, the Fed has become this very strange institution where it has the freedom to do these extraordinary things very, very quickly. And yet Congress, when they debate and talk about things, um, even small amounts, um, can get bogged down. But, ho- but hopefully, you know, this is a step in the right direction. And Richard, um, I, I really appreciate you coming on, uh, sharing your ideas, uh, explaining, you know, how we got to this place. And, uh, you know, thanks, thanks very much. And I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. It's been a pleasure meeting you. And uh, maybe we can do this again sometime. That would be great. Thanks, Richard. And now back to Niels. Thank you so much, Kevin and Richard, for a mind-blowing and thought-provoking conversation on the topic of money. Richard has a fascinating perspective on a solution to the problems the U.S. is facing, a money revolution, you could say, which in the end he believes could cure all diseases 
as he explains. For me, there were a number of highly interesting topics that Richard explained, such as the new way to think about how the economy grows post-leaving the gold standard and the emergence of creditism and the role that foreign central banks play in creating lots of US dollars that can be used to buy US debt, and most likely was the reason why the long end of the yield curve did not rise much during the period in the early 2000s when the Fed raised interest rates by more than 400 basis points. I also found Rich's rule of thumb in terms of the real growth in credit needed to avoid a recession or even a depression if credit growth goes below zero, and how he expects the Fed funds to go somewhat higher in 2023 than what the Fed is signaling and what the market currently expects. And of course, it was fascinating to hear the solution that Richard proposes for the US in terms of a massive investment program, as much as possible and as fast as possible, as he put it. Make sure you go and follow Richard and Kevin's work, as well as getting a copy of their books, because as you can tell from today's conversation, some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed enough on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.